A long time ago, there was nothing here. But the gardener had a plan because the gardener loves turning nothing into something. I brought a book here with me this morning. It's called A Treasury of Gardening. The subtitle says, Annuals, Perennials, Vegetables and Herbs, Landscape Design, Specialty Gardens. Pretty much anything you would ever want to know about having a garden is right here in this book. Now, I own this book, but if I'm being honest, I've never used this book. (laughs) Gardening is not really my thing. I don't know if somebody gave it to us or we got it for free somewhere. I don't really know. But I have spent a fair amount of time in this book. And you may not have ever thought of it like this before, but this book is also a treasury of gardening. Because the story of the Bible is a story of gardens. God loves gardening. In fact, I think it's appropriate to call God a gardener. So let's just refer to him as that today. Now, many of you might be about ready to tune me out, thinking I didn't come here this morning to hear a lesson on horticulture, especially in the middle of winter when everything is dying outside. But hold on, bear with me for a moment, because the story of this gardener and his garden is actually a story about you. A long time ago, in fact, in the very beginning, the gardener planted a garden, And the gardener made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. This was the first garden that the gardener had planted, Eden, and it was utterly perfect. Everything existed in perfect obedience to the gardener. It was very different than my gardens. It's been very different than my lawn looks right now. Perhaps in this garden, the leaves never needed raking. Uh, Perhaps the flowers never needed weeding. Perhaps there was just the right amount of water for every part of the soil. It was a true paradise. And in that garden paradise of perfection was a tree, the tree of life. And from that tree of life, as from the hands of the gardener himself, sprung life that was abundant and eternal. That life-giving tree was the very center of the garden, symbolizing how the life-giving gardener is supposed to be the center of our lives. Like anyone with a green thumb, the gardener carefully chose which plants to grow and how to arrange them, and he lovingly tilled the soil of his garden. And then the gardener knelt down and he put his hands in the soft earth and scooped it up into a little mound, dirt under his fingernails. And the gardener formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Now, the gardener had created for himself a partner, a friend, someone to work alongside and help him care for the garden, a man, Adam, and a woman, Eve. And the gardener and his people, they would walk together in the cool of the day in the garden, and all was right with the world. Don Bunton was a mammoth of a man. He's a Navy man in World War II, tall and tan, barrel-chested. He played catcher for the small-town baseball team, and he was my grandfather. Uh, I'm named after him. My middle name is Donald, like the duck. Um, and, and Don Bunton... My grandfather was very good at growing things. 
He was a farmer, grew corn and soybeans, scratched a living out of that Barton County clay for well over 50 years. And my grandpa was my hero. I spent my whole growing up years, all, all the summers and weekends at my grandparents' house with my grandpa Don and my granny Ruth. I'd live at their house and I'd help out on the farm. I, I loved growing up like that. And, and, and when I think of walking in the garden, in the cool of the day, I think of the long rows of tomato plants out in front of my grandparents' house. And out there, it wouldn't be uncommon to find my grandpa Don and my granny Ruth working in the garden. They'd be weeding or watering tilling, maybe spraying, maybe picking tomatoes, or maybe just walking together in the garden after a long day's work. I remember dreading having to help in the garden as a little kid. But I can remember that even as a little kid, watching them in the garden together, it was peaceful. And it was peaceful indeed as the gardener and his people walked together in the garden. There was no hurry, no agenda, nothing stood between them. I wonder what they talked about. But one day, the gardener came walking through the garden, and instead of waiting for him, his people were hiding from him. You see, there was another tree in the garden, a tree that the gardener had specifically warned them not to eat from, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And that knowledge was for only the gardener himself, but the people wanted it. So their twisted curiosity got the best of them, and they listened to the whisper of the serpent and took a big juicy bite as if saying, no, we'll decide what's right for us. We will decide what is good and true and beautiful. Not your will, but mine be done. They rebelled against the gardener, and all of us, too, have rebelled. We've all eaten from that tree And so from then on, the peace of that garden was shattered. What once was green and lush, full of vibrant color, was thrust into chaos and decay. Weeds and thorns and thistles and drought taking over. And the gardener's people were banished from the garden forever. The gardener had wanted to stay there with them forever. But they had chosen another path. They had chosen rebellion. And so paradise was lost. But the gardener had a plan because the gardener loves turning nothing into something. So the gardener decided to plant a new garden, a second garden. Well, kind of. (laughs) It was a garden of sorts, but this time instead of a physical garden with his people in it, now the gardener created his people as a garden. Are you confused yet? (laughs) Well, one of the powerful metaphors in Scripture is God's people, Israel, as a sort of garden, and actually our lives as kind of a garden. Now, if I'm being honest with you guys this morning, gardening is a pain in the neck, okay? (laughs) I I know some people with great gardens. My in-laws have massive gardens with endless rows of herbs and corn and beans and potatoes and berries, you name it. Rebecca and I have had a little tiny garden before, and it was a blast until the weeds grew. (laughs) Man, who wants to mess with those? I think I'm too lazy to be a good gardener. I think that's the problem. And if my life is a garden, I think there are still some weeds that need pulling I probably don't take the time to water that garden like I should. I probably need to be more careful protecting what kinds of seeds I'm planting, what kind of fences I'm putting up to protect it. Anybody else here need to tend to their garden? 
I don't know what your weeds might be. Maybe you still yell at your kids. Maybe you show up to work a little bit late, leave a little bit early and cheat your employer. Maybe you still complain about your relatives. We all have weeds that need pulling. Which brings us to Isaiah here this morning. We're going to be in Isaiah for this Christmas series together. And we're calling this series Unwrapping Christmas. I can remember as a kid sneaking into my parents' bedroom and climbing up on a stool and reaching high in the closet where I was not supposed to be and pulling down the present box. And I'd rifle through that box and figure out what all my Christmas presents were going to be that year. And I thought that I had committed the perfect crime. I put that box up and I walked away and nobody was the wiser. So I guess this is my confession to you. I'm not proud of this, but one of your preachers is a bald-faced liar. <laughs> For the next few weeks, though, we are going to be unwrapping the best Christmas present that any one of us has ever received, and we're even going to let you open it a little bit early. So if you would, open your Bibles with me to Isaiah. We're going to start off in Isaiah chapter 5, but we'll end up in chapter 11, so keep your finger over there. And we're going to be exploring some rather mysterious but grand prophecies of Christmas by the prophet Isaiah, because even though Isaiah lived a very long time before Jesus, he tells us a lot about who Jesus is. And Isaiah foretells this com coming day when somebody is going to come and save the world. And we now know that that somebody came at Christmas and that that somebody's name is Jesus. Isaiah, this man who we're going to be learning from in the coming weeks, was a prophet. He was a man who spoke on behalf of God to God's people, calling them to turn back to God, reminding them of what God said, and making sure that they were tending to their garden. The nation of Israel was and is a land of vineyards. And the prophet Isaiah gives us some words from God, the gardener himself, that Israel is his vineyard. And look, we're going to see here in chapter 5 how he lovingly and painstakingly prepares and plants and protects his people, his garden. Look at chapter 5. I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up and cleared it of stones and planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut out a wine press as well. Then later on in verse 7, the vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the nation of Israel, and the people of Judah are the vines he delighted in. So the gardener is lovingly caring for and protecting his garden, his people. The gardener gives his people, even as a means of protection and caring for them, a righteous and just king to lead them. And so eventually King David comes to the throne, and he's a king who is much like the gardener himself, to help keep weeds from growing and to help keep pests from invading God's garden. King David was a man after God's own heart, and the gardener promised that this king, King David, would have one of his offspring sit on the throne forever. The gardener said to him, your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. And King David did all right. He wasn't perfect, but he did all right. But it wasn't long before the other kings on down the family line from David let weeds into the garden. And once again, this garden that was once bountiful and full of color began to dry up and become barren. And although the first garden was marked by perfection, this second garden was marked 
by fruitlessness. You see, God's garden has always been supposed to be different from the world. In a world of thorns and thistles, briars and brambles, God's garden was designed to be an oasis, a sneak peek of heaven, a lush retreat from the rat race of sin-infected everyday life. God's garden, God's people, us, were designed to be a special and beautiful sanctuary, free from sin and working the way God intended everything to work way back in the first garden, Eden. But we've all messed that up, haven't we? But at one time, Israel had actually been that. They had been something of a light to the surrounding nations. They were culturally different and religiously distinct from those around them. They relied only on the one true God, not on economic success or political maneuvering or military firepower. They were passionately concerned with the hurts and the hopes of the poor and the disenfranchised. No weak person had to fear being left behind or forgotten. It started to look like God had always intended his garden to look. But Israel's obedience wasn't perfect. It was only partial. And their faith became diluted by systems that favored a personal spirituality, a, a, a personal spirituality, a, a hodgepodge religious approach, a little bit of this, a little bit of that, a little bit of what everybody else is doing. Does that sound familiar to our day? And they cut themselves off from the gardener. It became every man for himself. And they turned to other gods instead of Yahweh, to reliance on other nations instead of prayer, to military might. Instead of mercy and justice, they ignored the poor. They sought to gratify their own desires and cravings. Instead of God's law, they said, Not your will, God, but mine be done. And the garden quickly became infested. And so paradise was lost. But the gardener had a plan. Because the gardener loves turning nothing into something. But before you can grow a beautiful garden again, you got to get rid of the weeds. I can remember one particular day working on the farm with my grandpa, clearing out some land for a new field to be planted that spring. I was young, maybe 10 years old, I don't know. And this particular day was a whole family affair. Like any good gardener or farmer, my grandpa knew what it took, what had to be done before a land could grow a crop on it. And so they brought some tractors with dirt scrapers and land planes. They brought a bulldozer to knock down the trees and a whole herd of grandkids to pick up the rocks and the roots. The first tractor they ever let me drive on the farm had been a couple years earlier. It was an old Farmall H. I've always been a red tractor kind of guy. And it was an old tractor, but it ran, and I was feeling pretty cool on the H. But on this particular day, my uncle asked me to hop up on the Massey Ferguson and take a trailer down to the field that used it to haul rocks and roots and sticks. Well, the Massey, this old tractor, it wasn't much, but it was definitely a step up from the H. It even had a padded seat. So I was feeling pretty cool on this tractor, all right? I, I was feeling like, all right, they trust me. I got this. I was ecstatic. So as I drove that tractor down the road, putt, putt, putting at about five miles an hour, I was flying high. In fact, I wasn't even sitting down. I was standing, I was singing, I was dancing. I was on top of the world, but I was celebrating so much that I forgot to look where I was going. <laughs> And I ran that trailer right smack into the side of my uncle's van. <laughs> oh. And even at 10 years old, my sinful nature was alive and well. And so instead of confessing my mistake, 
I drove off, I parked the tractor, and I did my darndest to avoid eye contact with any adults for the rest of the day. Did I mention that I'm a bald-faced liar? <laughs> I wanted to hide. I knew that I was in the wrong, and I sinned to cover it up. I just wanted to hide, a lot like Adam and Eve in that first garden. There were weeds in my garden. But in the same way that even then my grandpa was still slowly and surely shaping the contour of that plot of land to get it ready for a bumper crop, the gardener was still hard at work on the contours of my heart. But Israel, the gardener's second garden, God's people, that vineyard, was about to become a wasteland. And Isaiah brings the words from God to tell them just that. Look at verses 4 through 7. The gardener says, What more could have been done for my vineyard than I have done for it? When I looked for good grapes, why did it yield only bad? Now I will tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge, and it will be destroyed. I will break down its wall, and it will be trampled. I will make it a wasteland, neither pruned nor cultivated, and briars and thorns will grow there. I will command the clouds not to rain on it. The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the nation of Israel, and the people of Judah are the vines he delighted in. And he looked for justice, but saw bloodshed. For righteousness, but heard cries of distress. So Isaiah foretells two things for this wayward garden. First, destruction. The gardener is going to prune his garden, and the garden will reject the gardener. And so it will become barren. Isaiah says in verse 24, Therefore, as tongues of fire lick up straw, and as dry grass sinks down in the flames, so their roots will decay, and their flowers blow away like dust. For they have rejected the law of the Lord Almighty, and spurned the word of the Holy One of Israel. This garden that was once lush is now barren, and it deserved to rot forever, left to be consumed by the brush and the brambles, because the garden had rejected the gardener once again. And as I hid that day, avoiding the consequences of what I had done, I was rejecting the pruning of the gardener. Oh, sure, it may seem like a little thing for a little kid, but it's not. Our refusal to confess, our refusal to humbly repent of our sin is locking the door on our gardener, refusing to let the gardener in, saying, no thanks, I'll live among the weeds. And so the first thing Isaiah foretells for this rebellious gardener, garden is destruction. And even the king himself, who was supposed to be the beacon of all that is good, the trendsetter of reliance on God and pure devotion, the member of the promised family line of David, even the king would be cut off, reduced from a once mighty tree to a dead, sawed-off tree stump. So the first thing Isaiah foretells is destruction, but the second thing he foretells is this, a coming hope. Even in the midst of the deadness, when it seems like there is nothing left, because the gardener had a plan, and the gardener loves turning nothing into something.
the barrenness of this garden, from the deadness of this sawed-off, ugly, wasteland tree stump, comes a little sprout, a shoot that grows up into a branch. God promises in chapter 11, a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. You might remember that Jesse was King David's dad, but David's family line has messed things up so bad that David doesn't even get his own name on his family line yet. But Isaiah says in chapter 4, In that day the branch of the Lord will be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the land will be the pride and the glory of the survivors in Israel. This sawed-off stump would sit dormant for a long time, seemingly dead, All hope seemingly gone, but there was yet a glimmer of hope. There was still a spark of life in this stump. And for us, in the midst of our weeds, our hopeless, unkempt barrenness, a tender green shoot was planted in the soil of human history. The little sprout of hope is Jesus Christ himself. He was nothing impressive when he came to us, just a little twig. Isaiah 53 says, like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground, he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. There's not much promise there. And yet the gardener had a plan because the gardener loves turning nothing into something. Paul would say it like this in 1 Corinthians 1, but God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things, the things that are not, to nullify the things that are. You see, Jesus came not as a mighty weed whacker, not as a bulldozer wiping us out and starting over with a new garden. He came not as pest control spraying Roundup and brush cutting everything around, tossing us out into the garbage with a brush pile just to be burned at random. Rather, he came into our garden He came into our broken, barren, wasteland mess. And he joined himself to us. And he did what we were always supposed to do, except this time he did it right. And he was small. He was tender. Just a little baby. And his mission was one of weakness, one of service, even to the point of death. And this little shoot, this little sprout coming up from the stump is a beautiful picture of often how our God chooses to work. You see, God loves taking little things, small beginnings, in the hands of a good gardener, a mighty God, and he makes something from nothing. We're telling today the story of these four gardens, but what you don't see on stage is there's actually a fifth garden right in the middle where everything changes, where the story turns, where the script was flipped. You see, this little shoot, Jesus, this sprout, this branch would be tested in a garden in the same way that Adam was. And the name of that garden was Gethsemane. And while all of us said, not your will, but mine be done, Jesus doesn't say that. Jesus says to the gardener, not my will, but yours be done. And this time... Jesus, the branch, was faithful, and he was hung on a tree to take the punishment for the weeds in our garden. And to us, the cross of Jesus Christ is the tree of life in our garden. 
It connects us back to the life that we broke ourselves off from way back in Eden. And the sprout died. The twig appeared to be broken. The shoot was snapped off. But the gardener had a plan because the gardener loves turning nothing into something. And on the third day, when Jesus Christ rose from the dead, it was not as a weak little sprout, but as a mighty branch bearing fruit that now all of us get to partake in. And so now we find our life and our hope as we cling to Jesus, the branch. You remember when I ran into my uncle's van? <laughs> well, I, I could hide myself, but I couldn't hide the damage I'd done to his van. <laughs> Eventually, somebody saw it and figured out what happened, and I had to face up to my mistake, and I had to confess. And I remember very clearly that I'd just gotten paid for my work on the farm as a little kid. I'd just gotten the first $100 bill I ever had. It was clean. It was crisp. It was new. It smelled good. And I had to give that $100 bill to my uncle to help pay for the damage I'd done to his van. I was crushed. <laughs> But you know what? He gave it back to me. That's grace. I didn't deserve that. The stump of David had been cut down. They were unfaithful. The garden of Israel was barren. Our gardens are full of weeds. We have rebelled against the gardener. But Jesus the branch came in and did what Israel and us could not. He bore fruit in obedience to God that now all of us get to partake in. And that is grace. So now, look what happens in the garden of Jesus, the branch, which, by the way, is the church. This is us. And this garden is marked by fruitfulness. Fruitfulness. I'm sure many of you remember the destruction in the aftermath of the eruption of Mount St. Helens in Washington. You may have seen the scenes of a landscape that was once beautiful but was reduced to just smoldering stumps and ashes. And maybe you feel like that's your life. Not what it could be, not what it used to be, not what it should be. During that volcanic eruption, the intense heat melted away the soil, leaving behind just bare rock coated with ash. And naturalists in the Forest Service were left wondering just how long it would be before any living thing could possibly grow there ever again. And then one day, a park employee was walking through the destruction and stumbled across a lush patch of wildflowers and ferns and grasses springing up tenaciously from the desolation. It took a few seconds for him to realize an eerie fact. This patch of ve vegetation formed the shape of an elk. Plants had sprouted up from the organic material where an elk had been buried by the ash. And from then on, naturalists look for those little patches of green to help calculate the loss of wildlife. And this Christmas, you all are going out into a dark and desolate world, a world where it is impossible to bear fruit on your own, and yet Christ died for us, leaving us a little patch of green in the midst of the ashes of our desolate garden. And when you stay attached to Jesus the branch, you can go into the barrenness and you can leave behind little patches of green, a little foretaste of heaven, a glimpse of the garden that we are headed for and to which we already belong. 
We're living in the barrenness right now, but somebody died to leave behind the soil in which true goodness can grow. And so now all of us, when we are attached to Jesus, can bear fruit and give the world a little glimpse of heaven. Look at what Isaiah says that the church and heaven will be like. He says in chapter 11, a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of the knowledge and fear of the Lord, for he will delight in the fear of the Lord. Jesus is filled with the spirit, and now we get the fruit of the spirit because of him, the fruit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. We get that when we're attached to Jesus. Look at what Isaiah says this will look like in verses 3 through 5. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears. But with righteousness, he will judge the needy. With justice, he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness the sash around his waist. At last, all prejudice and inequality is gone, beginning with us, the church, and justice will reign here as Jesus begins to do away with all evil until the day when finally all evil is banished. The wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf and the lion and the yearling together. And a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear. The young will lie down together. And the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the cobra's den. And the young child will put its hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him, and his resting place will be glorious. At last, all hostility in every relationship is done away with, and total peace is restored, and it's like we're back in the garden again. That's what it's supposed to look like here. And people from every nation are going to kneel together at the raised banner of the root of Jesse, which is the cross of Jesus Christ. And there, at the foot of the cross, we are all recipients of this fruit that we could not grow on our own, but that we receive from Jesus who freely gives it to us. And at last, peace is restored. So if you're wondering where to find your peace this Christmas, let me take you to the cross where Jesus the branch died for you. You may be dreading this Christmas season. You may look at your family or even yourself and you may think, there's nothing here. It's too far gone. I'm too far gone. And you're right. You can't do it on your own. You cannot bear fruit on your own. Your garden is barren and full of weeds and you need the gardener to come in and work on you because the only way you're ever going to be fruitful is by staying attached to Jesus have you noticed our church's logo? It's a little tree. It's a branch. When you see that, I want you to remember to stay attached to Jesus. Jesus himself says in John chapter 15, I am the true vine. My father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. While every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I've spoken to you. Remain in me and I will remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. 
Apart from me, you can do nothing. So when we stay attached to Jesus, when we say, as Jesus said, not my will, but yours be done, we bear fruit just little by little. And you become the kind of person who can go the extra mile this Christmas, loving that difficult family member even when they don't deserve it. You become the kind of person who teaches your family this holidays that it really is more blessed to give than to receive. You become the kind of person who chooses to fast and pray instead of complain and gossip. You become the kind of person who chooses not to have the last word in that argument because being right doesn't really matter that much after all anyway. You become the kind of person who chooses to forgive your spouse and not even bring up the things that annoy you. And when we choose to stay attached to Jesus and bear fruit in those little moments, a little flower pops up from the ashes. If you do nothing else this Christmas season, stay attached to Jesus because he can take the dust and the dirt of your failures and he can make something beautiful out of it just like he made you out of the dust. He's our only hope. He's our branch. He's our source of life. And if you stay attached to him, you can look at the barrenness of your past and you can say a long time ago, there was nothing here. But the gardener had a plan because the gardener loves turning nothing into something. And little by little, he will use you to be a foretaste of heaven to a world that needs to see it. Because that's the garden that we're headed for. We get a picture of this garden in Revelation chapter 22, the end of the book. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing down from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. And that garden, the final garden, is a garden of restoration. Yet again, marked by perfection as we all live in perfect obedience to the gardener, even better than the first garden this time. And before too long, we'll be there. And Jesus, the branch, will make everything new and he'll bring us back to the garden that the gardener has been preparing for us all along. And once again, we'll walk with the gardener in the cool of the day and we'll reap the benefits of the tree of life. And we may say, a long time ago, there was nothing here. But the gardener had a plan because the gardener loves turning nothing into something. Will you pray with me? Oh, Father, we love you. We are so grateful that you are in charge. <laughs> you are wise. And you know in each and every one of us what seeds need watered and which weeds need pulled. And so, Father, our gardens are still a little messy, but I ask you to come into me and into these, my brothers and sisters, and to keep making us more like the garden we're headed for and to empower us to bear fruit this holiday season to a world that needs to catch a glimpse of what everything's supposed to be like. We can't do that on our own. We need Jesus. And so most of all, God, we praise you for sending your son. And we praise you for him dying on the cross and allowing us to have the fruit of the Spirit, to bear fruit that we couldn't do on our own. It's only because of His grace that we're even here. So we love you, and we worship you, and we're grateful for you. It's in your powerful name, King Jesus, that we pray. Amen.